The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. RedOrbit.com, your universe online. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner. Powered by RedOrbit.com. Welcome to the Science of Success, brought to you by RedOrbit.com. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick with a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. Today, you're going to learn what it's like to have breakfast with the Dalai Lama, the difference between compassion and empathy, and why that's important, and how you can harness compassion to achieve more and be a better version of yourself with our guest, Chris Cook. As a heads up, Chris was recording this during a snowstorm, so his audio quality does drop a little bit but the content is so good that I know you're still going to love it. Because the science of success has taken off like a rocket ship since launch, with more than 80,000 downloads, making the front page of New and Noteworthy and much more, I wanted to offer something to my listeners. I'm giving away my three favorite psychology books to one lucky listener. Just text SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to 44222 to be entered to win. And... If you've been listening and loving the podcast, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps spread the word so more people can master the science of success too. Last week was the final episode of the Weapons of Influence series. We talked about what happens when you take people's cookies away, how changing a single phrase drove six times more sales, and why open outcry auctions turn your brain into mush, and much more as we did a deep dive into the scarcity bias. Give that episode a listen. 
Today, we're excited to have another great guest on the show, Dr. Chris Cook. Chris is a former counterintelligence agent, the founding director of the Center for Compassion, Creativity, and Innovation, a professor of political science at Western Connecticut State University, and author of the upcoming book, The Compassionate Achiever. Chris, welcome to the Science of Success. Matt, thank you for having me. I love the podcast. Well, we're so excited to have you on here. So to start out, you know, obviously you have a, a very deep and kind of fascinating background. Tell me, how did your interest at kind of the intersection of neuroscience and social science emerge initially? Well, as a political scientist, I wanted to understand why people would cooperate or why would they fall into conflict with one another or why would they just ignore each other? And I think if you exclude neuroscience, what's happening in people's brains, what's happening in their perceptions or how they perceive reality, you're never going to get to an answer if everything stays superficial. So I wanted to blend both the neuroscience, what happens inside, to what happens outside. You know, in, in science, it's not nature or nurture. It's nature and nurture. And I think we need to understand that more deeply when it comes to the social sciences. And when it comes to the social sciences, neuroscience hasn't been there. And so I decided to jump in. I think that's so important. And actually, uh, one of the people we've talked about on the podcast that I'm a, a huge fan of is, is Charlie Munger. And he, he kind of explores the same thing, which is basically the notion that psychology fundamentally underpins uh, you know, any, any phenomenon or any endeavor that involves human beings, right? Whether it's business, psychology, economics, whatever it might be. And any understanding that doesn't incorporate psychology is a fundamentally flawed understanding or fundamentally you know, kind of imperfect or incomplete picture of whatever that field might be. And I, th I think that's the case. And I think you, you know, with psychology, there's this cool dialogue going on, I think, between psychology and neuroscience and now the social sciences. Because, you know, you have fields now called neuroeducation. And you have Paul Zak, who calls himself a neuroeconomist. And so I think it's a combination of different disciplines. And I think if we, you know, take those disciplines and treat them like a combination lock and combine them together in different ways, I think we'll come out with not only new ways to move forward in resolving issues and overcoming problems, but to also give us new ways to go back to research to get a better understanding of what's happening inside the human brain. So one of the, one of the kind of core you know, defining characteristics of everything that you do is the, the notion of compassion. And that's something we haven't really talked about on the podcast. Tell me a little bit about you know, kind of how you were drawn into the study of compassion and, and how do you, you know, even define compassion? Uh, let me start with the definition of compassion since I founded the debate team on campus here. And so you always have to define your terms. I was a debater in high school for the record. So, <laughs> so then, you know, you know, right. You have to have topicality. We call it in debate. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so uh, I define compassion as a 360 degree understanding of a problem or suffering of another. So it's two parts here. That's the first part. 360 degree understanding of the suffering or problem of another. And then number two is you take action to alleviate that suffering and address the problem. So that's how I define compassion. And, you know, from my counterintelligence days all the way through my work on international water issues to my work here on various educational settings, it's about working through problems that I think for the most part, have divided people. And where I've seen compassion come in, it's, it acts as a glue to unite people to move forward. And I even saw this in my military unit. The units that always tried to find a way 
through a solution without leaving anybody behind, we're the most successful units. And we still have that model, right? We leave no one behind. And we're willing to sacrifice anything. We're willing to do anything to get our, our fellow trooper back. So it, this is not something that's a surprise. It's just something that's been you know, sitting in front of us. And, and you've had it in a previous podcast before. It's one of those invisible gorillas, right? And yep. we, we, we sometimes just don't look at it. it. It goes by us. And so all I did was slow down. And my kids helped me slow down a little bit uh, and asked me all those types of questions. And uh, it's one of the advantages of being a dad. You, you get to slow down and answer a lot of questions. And, and that was one of the questions I had in my mind. And then I was always told, you know, that, oh, you're too nice. And by that saying was that you're always going to not succeed. You're, you're going to have problems getting ahead because people are going to take advantage of you. And that hasn't been the case. People come together and we resolve problems and, and overcome things. We're building an honors program at Western Connecticut State University and a, CEO, a very successful CEO just donated $1 million. And so I, I didn't see it that way, but other people did. And so you, they would give me that line that people like to say all the time about Charles Darwin. It's survival of the fittest. And Charles Darwin did not say that. He hypothesized that about that, right, on the origin of the species. But most of his work, all, a good chunk of his work, over 90% of his work, including The Descent of Man, shows that it's quite the opposite. It's really survival of the kindest. And especially in chapters two, four, and five of The Descent of Man, he literally says, Matt, that the species that has the highest number of its members, and this is his words, that are sympathetic, meaning altruistic, generous, or compassionate, will move up the evolutionary ladder more efficiently and effectively than other species. And when you take that idea and you overlay it on problems like water, and you overlay it on problems that have political and economic ramifications, you change your perspective from survival of the fittest to survival of the kindest. You find new answers and new doors that you can jump through to not only help you succeed, but the people around you succeed. That actually reminds me of a book called The Moral Animal. I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's by a guy named Robert Wright. But uh, it basically talks about a similar idea, which is essentially that evolution sort of pre-programmed us to be geared towards compassion because it actually has a, you know, kind of a positive survival benefit. And it's science. It's, it's inside us, too. When we think in a compassionate way, we actually activate, release a peptide hormone called oxytocin. Right? And oxytocin then activates two neurotransmitters called dopamine and serotonin. And dopamine is that reward type of feeling we get. Uh, for me, it would be when I drink chocolate milk. I love chocolate milk and I get a high off of it. Or when I see my wife, I release a lot of dopamine. And serotonin is that calming level. And if you think about a successful environment or a successful pers person, are they optimistic and happy and calm? Or are they mad, angry, frustrated? Eh, which one's going to create more success? This is not rocket science. Okay, so it may be neuroscience, but it, it's, it's in us. And we can choose to activate that path by the choices we make. We can choose to be compassionate, or we can choose to be apathetic or callous. That's up to us, and then we create that environment. We can talk a little bit more about that science, especially when it comes to education. Uh, there's a lot of great research out uh, about what happens in a compassionate, positive environment and learning in, in learning environments like, like school classrooms, what they do to a gene called DRD4, it's, it's pretty, pretty awesome. And I think you, you combine all the science together and then you can see what's happening in the real world and combine them together. You get these really amazing new insights into what we should be doing 
to achieve more success. So tell me a little bit more about uh, kind of the hormonal, you know, and the chemical reactions that take place when, when you know, when we feel compassion, talking about oxytocin and dopamine uh, and all of that stuff. A lot of uh, the work, I think, uh, started with Antonio Damasio, right? And one of my favorite books called Descartes' Error. And we can go back a little bit further and, and review that in, in a moment if you'd like. But then I think really about five years ago, Dr. Tanya Singer from Germany, Leipzig, Germany, did a number of studies with using MRI scanners to show what happens when people think in an empathetic way compared to a compassionate way. And when you think in an empathetic way, when you have empathy on your mind, she found that the brain areas that light up are the same areas as pain. And so your brain doesn't know the difference right now, right? It's, it's, it's lighting up the pain areas when you think in an empathetic way. But when you think in a compassionate way, you light up different areas. And it's the same areas as love. And the reason why this is so important for reality, for practical purposes, is that we've been talking about burnout in important fields like first responders, nurses, teachers, firemen, policemen, you name it, those, those professions that help other people constantly. And you have these high rates of burnout. And since the 1980s, it started in the nursing area. We called it compassion burnout. But Dr. Tanya Singer's work is showing that that's really a misnomer. If anything, it's called empathy burnout. Because in empathy, you're feeling the same emotion as someone else. You're stepping into what I call the emotional quicksand of another person. And you can get stuck in that. You can get overwhelmed by that emotion. Where compassion, I think, helps you ride the wave of emotions because you have this 360-degree understanding, this kind of multidisciplinary look at a problem. So you can stay out of the quicksand or you have branches to grab to get you out of the quicksand. So the science is showing some really cool insights, especially Tanya Singer. And I think we need to start applying it to the real world to help those people who are helping other people. So I think a lot of listeners might basically think of compassion and empathy as synonyms. How would you sort of distinguish between the two of those? Obviously, we've defined compassion. What, I mean, on a chemical level, it sounds like you've kind of talked about this, but tell me a little bit more about the distinction between compassion and empathy. So empathy is basically, in simple terms, feeling the same emotion as someone else. So if they're sad, they're depressed, you're going to be sad, you're going to be sad. So you absorb that feeling. And compassion is this kind of understanding. It's this acquiring of knowledge or learning of why a person is down, why they're going through specific incidences. You can have compassion without empathy. I think empathy can help it sometimes, but you, empathy is not necessary for compassion. Compassion is one step. It's this emotional absorption. You're feeling the same emotion. In compassion, you're feeling kindness towards someone else, not sympathy. Sympathy is something completely different. You're in compassion, you're wanting to try to help. You're wanting to try to assist. And we all know where good intentions could lead, right? It could lead to more problems. So you have to want this understanding, this learning, and you want to ask these questions uh, about why someone's down. You, you, you're going to address them in a way with respect that tries to move them forward so that they don't get stuck and that you don't get stuck. And empathy, right, is that one-step absorption. Compassion is two-step. Understanding, and then you take action to resolve the problem. So compassion is much more action-oriented than empathy. Correct. And I think we see that constantly, that compassion, and this is one of the reasons I think also 
Dalai Lama says, compassion is not religious. And we have a lot of people that confuse compassion with uh, some type of religious notion. No, <laughs> an atheist can have compassion. And I, I know plenty that do. This idea of compassion is a building process. It helps not only people get up when they're down, but it moves towards success. And we see this in teams when it's those guys on baseball, Wall Street Journal article had this a great piece about, they called it the glue guys on baseball teams, right? They're not the, the guys with the high stats. They're not the guys that, you know, the media is looking after to interview after a game because they don't have the big name, but they're the guys that keep the team together. They're the guys that do the simple things that back each other up. So the second baseman, say he's not a star, he's backing up the first baseman. So if the first baseman misses the ball, he's there to scoop it up. The stats are not really going to show up, but he's helping his team out and he's always there for everyone else. The journal called it the glue guys. Those are the guys helping everyone else, making their team succeed. And I think if you look at some of the sports teams that have won the big, the big games, especially in the NBA recently, it's not necessarily the teams with the superstars on it. It's the teams that play together and help one another. They know where they're going to be at. And, and I, think, I think we seem to overlook that fact a lot. And so compassion not only helps people when they're down, but it's, it builds success. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. At a chemical level in your brain, compassion triggers the hormones that are more aligned with sort of the feelings of love and, and happiness as opposed to empathy, which triggers feelings more about pain and suffering. Is that, a, is that a good way to think about it? I think that's a great description of it, yes. And basically, if you look at it as a little kind of sideways equation, you have compassion to your left, compassion activates oxytocin to your right, oxytocin then activates dopamine serotonin dopamine serotonin creates happiness and optimism right and, and this calmness and what usually leads to success 
people thinking in a happy, optimistic, in a calm way. So do you think that compassion is something that is innate or is it something that you can, that, that can be learned and can be trained? Nah, it's both. And let me explain that. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, famous for the social contract, he wrote that we have, in his words, natural compassion. But in, in society, we tend to unlearn that natural compassion. And think about what we teach on the playgrounds. And this really came home to me when I was teaching over in Europe in 2007 and 2008. I was teaching an international relations class, and I was explaining realism, the theory of realism in international relations involved. And I was using the king of the hill metaphor that we have for kids out in the playgrounds here in the United States. And I said, so when you're on the king of the hill and you're top of the hill, what are you supposed to do? And 119 European students were looking at me like, what are you talking about? And so I had to explain, one young lady from Poland raised her hand. She said, Dr. Cook, what's King of the Hill? And I had to explain to 119 European students that when you get on top of the hill, what, we, what our kids do in the playground is push each other down so they're on top of, of the hill. They, had, they don't play King of the Hill. They don't play Kill the Carrier. And so it was a wake-up call to me about what we teach our kids in society. Do we teach them to reach down and help people up or to keep people and push people down? These are practical matters. And we can change that, but we decided to focus on survival of the fittest instead of survival of the kindest. And so I think it's natural and that we can unlearn it. And if we can unlearn it, we certainly can learn it. And there have been plenty of studies out there showing that we can learn it. And the United States Marine Corps has also uh, moved in on that as well. And they've had two studies now, two different years, $1 million donated to each on mindful training for, for Marines. That's fascinating. So how can we, you know, how can the listeners and how can the both of us kind of move towards being more consciously compassionate? I think there's a lot of different ways uh, to do this. And, and let me just go through two practical ways that I think have made news or even headlines recently. But uh, when I talk to people about it, like, I didn't see that. Um, the cover of Time Magazine not too long ago had, had mindfulness on the front, front of its cover. And I think that if we take time out, and for some of us, I, I do meditate uh, in the morning, and, and I do compassion meditation. It's a quick, I do, it takes no more than 10 minutes, and you're off, and you, you, you kind of just register yourself to look at the world in a way that, you know, I'm going through it, and I can help others. But I, I, I always start with someone for example, my grandmother, who's always helped me. And when I'm out driving, I'm not the guy who, when someone cuts me off, I'm not the guy who flips them off. I actually bless myself. I'm, I was, my grandmother raised me Catholic. Um, it, it's those types of things that it, the guy who cut me off was like, you know, that was the nicest thing anybody ever did. <laughs> and it was a great conversation afterwards. It's those little things. But in schools, there's a thing called social and emotional learning that Funding for it just passed with the Every Student Succeeds Act, and Senator Blumenthal from Connecticut was a major writer of that section of the bill. And that weaves in the learning of values such as courage, compassion, that help students become more emotionally resilient and to also recognize and to understand the emotions of others around them, that the world just doesn't revolve solely around them that the world is really a combination of relationships and interconnections. And we, we should start learning that right in kindergarten all the way up. So those are just you know two very different ways, everything from mindful meditation 
to social emotional learning in school. And, and let me go to the business world. General Mills, you know, it's, this past year, they were at $17.9 billion company. They are famous for a mindful leadership uh, program that they have. Google has it too. A lot of the successful businesses know that compassion and mindfulness raises the bottom line. It makes their employees have higher retention. They, it makes their employees stay. Their employees want to stay because of the environment that it creates, and it creates more productive employees. This is not something that's soft, something that, you know, did you hug your dolphin today idea? This is real. This has real ramifications, consequences, and effects that help everybody around you. And I think it leads to success in a much more constructive way than the king of the hill or survival of the fittest mentality. You touched on so many different things that I want to uh, that I want to dig into. Um, you know, one of the meditation, obviously, I, I'm a huge believer in meditation. Personally, I meditate every day uh, for the last couple of years, and uh, we just did a, a, a podcast on meditation actually, where we dig into a bunch of different pieces of it. And one of the kind of core components of my personal meditation is, is sort of very similar. It's kind of a forgiveness component. And that reminds me of one of my favorite quotes of all time, which is from Gandhi, which is, the weak cannot forgive. Forgiveness is an attribute of the strong. Yes. And kind of the notion you talked about, you know, getting cut off by somebody when you're driving, the idea that you should forgive people, not because necessarily even that they deserve it, but it's because you know, for your own emotional well-being, and there's research that backs a lot of this up, it's, it's, you know, it's bad for you to hold on to grudges. It's bad for your blood pressure. It's bad for all kinds of different things. And the more you can go through life kind of forgiving people, and, you know, even when we talked in, a, in an earlier podcast episode about kind of not necessarily understanding or seeing every piece of reality, right? Like, you might not understand why that person might be in a bad mood today. And so there's so many different reasons for that I think forgiveness is so important, and it's uh, you know, it's not just about, you know, being right or getting revenge or whatever. It's like, you know, you got to forgive them for your sake, not because not for their sake necessarily. That, that's so true. And, and I also just want to build up that you're right, Matt. And the other is self-forgiveness or self-compassion as well. And there've been plenty of studies now on self-compassion and how that boosts creativity. And so, you're right. I, I always think when there's a, you know, an, an older woman or an older man in front of me, that's somebody's grandpa, that's somebody's grandmother. And yeah, you know what? I, I could be a minute or two late to where I'm meant to go. I should have left earlier. That was my issue. But it also builds compassion. And, and when you step into a place that has compassion flowing through its halls and, and in its rooms, you, you can feel it. You can feel the energy. You can feel the electricity and the creativity that, that's flowing around. And, and speaking of flowing, this is another thing that, that gets to me that I hear. I, I had one mom when I was uh, speaking to a school saying, I didn't, she literally said this, I, didn't want, I don't want my son to learn compassion because I don't want him to be weak. And so I asked, her, I asked her, we were in the state of Washington, and I said, you know, we're surrounded by rocks here. And so Washington State has a lot of rocks. I said, so it's one of the hardest elements that we have, but the softest element can actually cut through rock. And that's water. Water with its perseverance and its gentleness can still cut through some of the hardest materials that we have. And we just have to sometimes do some intellectual judo on our own selves to look at the world in a more constructive way. And it's right in front of us, but a lot of times we don't either see it or want to see it because of the things that are happening to us. And, 
And your idea of forgiveness is really key for that because I think it moves us all along. And and then people are quite surprised when when you do do it. And and then it, it leads to better relationships and a better community. I love the analogy of, of water. And I think there's so many, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but there's so many different ways you can think about the power of water and energy flow and all of that stuff. And it's such a powerful metaphor for, for so many different things. Um, but I, I want to change directions or actually touch on something you, you brought up a little bit earlier. Tell me a little bit more about kind of the idea of emotional resilience and, you know, how can we teach children to be emotionally resilient? I think that's, you know, we talked about kind of, uh, dealing with setbacks and embracing discomfort and some of those other topics in earlier podcast episodes. And that's something that I think is probably one of, if not the most important traits that someone can have is kind of the ability to deal with hardship. Tell me a little bit more about that whole kind of concept and how that ties in with compassion as well. I think what we've done throughout society is we've created this fear of failure. And failure, as you know, I've looked you up too in businesses, some of the major successes come from failures, right? Because they failed and then they see another door. They're like, oh, when they're down, they can look up and they see the door differently and they walk through that door and it becomes highly successful. Well, the way we have are focused on tests in, in schools, kids are afraid to fail. And if we create a place where most businesses fail and then they, they succeed, but when we do it in school, the kids are, are they're just flattened by the idea. Weaving the idea that you can fail and have projects that don't work the first time, but then maybe you have a secondary plan and to teach them to look for a secondary way to achieve whatever goal they want to achieve, that's going to help them in life in many different ways. You know, when I was growing up, only the top team received a trophy and you worked for that trophy, but our coaches didn't put us down. They helped build us up. And one of the things that I do with my kids is I have them try things first. And if they don't succeed, I talk, I ask them, I don't talk, I usually question them. I use a lot of questioning. And I question them to how are they, not me, how are they going to solve the problem? And the more they do that, the more practice they have in finding new ways, new solutions. I gotta tell you, our conversations around the dinner table are awesome because they're always challenging me from different perspectives. I have so much fun in trying to feel their questions because they're constantly coming at me from up, down, sideways, diagonally. And that skill will allow them, I, I believe, to become resilient in any situation because they're, when they're down, which they inevitably will, we all get down. I've taught them to literally, when you're down on the ground, you look up for that door because now you see something different. And Matt, it's so much fun to see my, one of my oldest now, he's, he gets excited when something goes wrong because something better is going to happen. You know, maybe that's a little too far on one side, but that's what we're looking to do. And compassion, if you look at compassion, dopamine, right? So oxytocin starts dopamine. And dopamine, in cognitive terms, you know, John Medina in his book called Brain Rules, he, he has this great analogy for dopamine. He calls it the post-it note of memory, that when you have a lot of dopamine flowing around, you tend to remember whatever it is that you're studying. And it's a brilliant metaphor. I use it all the time with my kids and, and, and my students. So generating oxytocin, generating that compassion creates neurochemical systems in their brains that all of a sudden starts bringing back memories that they, hey, wait a minute, that's the answer that I can move forward on to the next side. 
And that dopamine increases their feeling of reward. So all of a sudden, you've created, by establishing compassion in an environment, not only something that's better for them cognitively, but something that will make them more emotionally resilient and finding ways forward. And then serotonin kicks in, so it keeps them calm, so they don't go flying off the handle or flipping out. That's how it happens. That's how it moves forward. That's how I think you can create emotionally resilient kids. This is, this is something that I remember my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Peck, this is exactly what she did. Her classroom, I couldn't wait to go to school, even when I was sick. She made me love learning just because of the environment that she created. And she might get arrested, though, nowadays, because she used to massage every one of us for 10 seconds during a test to relax us. I don't think she'll be allowed to do that right now in our day environment, but I couldn't wait to go to school because she made, she made learning a lifelong love of every student that she ever touched. That's what we need. We need more Mrs. Pecks around the world. You know, it's, it's amazing that, I mean, when I think about some of the stuff, you know, we talked about in earlier episodes, whether it's the growth mindset, you know, you, you were just earlier before we started recording uh, Chris was showing me the book Mindset, which we've talked about on the podcast, uh, whether it's stoicism, you know, these 2,000-year-old lessons. It's like there's this – the more you study a lot of this stuff, and, and it's amazing, that the more you find it's all rooted in science, but it's just these fundamental lessons that span thousands of, of years of, and of human generations. And, and, you know, it's just such a core kind of kernel and nugget of truth that you have to be resilient and you have to be focused on overcoming your failures. Yes, and life's about that. And if you think about it, it's it. I love whitewater rafting. Life is like a lot, a lot like like whitewater rafting or surfing. You know, there are different rocks, different bends in the in the river or in surfing. You know, the waves come at you, and you can't choose which waves come at you, but you certainly can choose which waves you're going to ride. And helping people find those waves that they want to ride into the shore of life. Oh my God, that's a beautiful thing. And then watching them choose their own waves as they get older, that's, that's what this is about. And creating an environment where they feel, feel safe to do that, where they're willing to take chances. So if they're willing to take chances, they're willing to fail. And if they're willing to fail, they're willing to get themselves back up. And if they're willing to get themselves back up, watch out for the society that that's happening in because it's going to take off. I totally agree. I think that, I think that stuff is, is, is so important. So. I'm curious in your in your TEDx talk, you kind of talked about how to and and you know this again ties a little bit back into the idea of parenting and dealing with children. But you talked about the idea of I think it was even maybe talking to your kids about why is there so much evil in the world, right? And how can we kind of widen our I think you use the term circle of compassion to help sort of deal with that or counteract that or uh, you know I don't remember the exact terminology, but tell me a little bit more about kind of that concept and how you know from a broader perspective, we can start to widen that circle of compassion. Yeah, um, thanks for that. My Sandy Hook Newtown is less than 15 minutes away from our house. And so they knew what happened. And I, I came home early from school, so I made sure I took them off the bus. And we just sat in the living room and talked about what happened, even though they were very young. You can't hide it. They know. They've heard. And so I wanted them to talk uh, about it and their concerns about it. But that that comes from a visit with the Dalai Lama. We at Western Connecticut State University, we hosted his holiness for two 
two days of talks here, and it was pretty amazing, and hopefully we're getting back again. And what I wanted and what we've done is I just didn't want it a one-and-done event. I wanted an event that would carry on and have ramifications and effects and consequences in a good way after he left. So we started putting together, there were quite a few of us, the Center for Compassion, Creativity, and Innovation. And he loved it so much, saw what our mission was, what we wanted to do, and he donated the first $107,000 to move the center along. And basically what the center does is widen that circle of compassion because we go around and help towns and cities and universities and schools become schools, universities, cities, and towns of compassion. And what we try to help them do is we use the Charter for Compassion, which was started by Karen Armstrong, and she won that TED Talk that, that one year. I'm forgetting. I think it was around 2006. And for the Charter for Compassion, creating charters all around the world. And we thought that was a great idea. But we wanted every single community to tailor fit that Charter for Compassion for them because every community has its own issues, its own problems that they need to solve. And so there's no kind of one compassion suit to fit all. There's different ways to get there. And so what we do is we help those schools and universities and cities and towns move forward in that direction. And that is one way we do it. We also do it on a practical, very, very local level. Uh, I've combined high school students with college students to solve the homeless, not solve, address the homeless uh, problem in our area. And so in the past year, we had um, 50 backpacks that the students, high school and college students, found donors for, went to dental clinics, got toothpaste, uh, toothbrushes, went to the hotels in our area. So everyone else pitched in and they see the kids trying to overcome the problem. And so they donated more than what we asked. And it just kind of rolled and became bigger. It's kind of like, you know, when you create a snowman and you're rolling that, that little snowball and it becomes the base, that's exactly what happened. We created this cool compassion base that we can build whatever snowman we want. And by the way, it gets pretty cold here, so it won't melt away. And it's so awesome to see that it started with kids helping adults find their compassion. So everything from helping policy happen to helping address the homeless issue. And now we even have a project. We convinced the mayor of uh, the city of Danbury to give us the land all around City Hall to create a compassion garden representing all the ethnicities in the city of Danbury. So high school students, now even uh, elementary school students, uh, we got Women's Gardens Club wanting to help. Um, some corporations are donating the flowers and the whole area is gonna have a walking path uh, representing all the ethnicities in, in, in that city and they're calling it a compassion garden. So everything from gardens to homelessness to creating policies to move uh, communities along. That's how we're doing, that's how we're widening the circle of compassion. That's fascinating. Um, and you, uh, you kind of spoiled one of my questions. I was going to ask you, I was very curious uh, about how you had met the Dalai Lama. <laughs> we invited him uh, to uh, come to, to campus, and we thought he was going to come for a day, but he stayed for two, which was amazing. Uh, and it's up and recorded on our website uh, and the Center for Compassion, Creativity, and Innovation. There are links to those uh, hour, a little over an hour uh, long presentations by his holiness. That's amazing. Well, I'm curious what, you know, for, for listeners that are really interested in, in compassion and learning more about this, 
What are some of the uh, kind of resources or books that you would recommend uh, that they check out? Wow. There's so many. Um, I'm just looking at my bookshelf right now. I have one of my favorites, and I used it uh, quite a lot, was uh, the Dalai Lama's The Universe in a Single Atom. That was an excellent book. I love that title. Um, it is. It's a, it's a great book uh, as well. The Compassionate Instinct is, an, is another good one. Um, Buddha's Brain is a, is a great one. Uh, anything by Daniel Goleman, I think, would be fantastic. On the uh, kind of social emotional learning side, the newest book out is published this year, 2016, Emotions, Learning, and the Brain by Mary Helen Mordino Yang. Uh, fantastic book. The foreword is written by Howard Gardner and the afterword by Antonio Damasio. So you have this great education neuroscience um, book out there um, that I think moves it forward. Um, How to Be Compassionate by the Dalai Lama is another good book. Um, mindfulness, the nurture effect. There's so many great ones out there. I think those, those are some of the top, top books that I would recommend. So uh, what is one piece of sort of actionable homework that you would give to our listeners uh, in terms of maybe applying compassion in their lives? Okay. One is to understand, to listen. The first step in compassion is to be a great listener. And what I mean listener is you don't listen to reply, you listen to understand. And if you want to be compassionate, you have to understand that person that you're trying to help. And we have a culture that listens to reply right now. And I think if we take a little bit longer just to simply listen to understand, we'll be able to move forward together in a much more constructive way. I love that. I think that's great. Um, and there's actually a bunch of research on sort of the communication side that, you know, you build rapport much better with people when you listen with the intent of sort of understanding as opposed to listening just so you can say whatever you want to say after that. Exactly. So what is, what is the best place for people to find you online? Um, my website, it's Chris Cook, C-H-R-I-S-K-U-K-K.com. And you'll see there uh, also, there will be a new book coming out called The Compassionate Achiever that will address a lot of these steps and show you practically how to get there. But the first step is listening. Awesome. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on The Science of Success. Uh, The audience is going to absolutely love all this stuff. I think compassion is something that we don't talk about enough and it's it's so important Uh, and it's scientifically validated as kind of a chemical neurological level, something that can create positive results in your life. And it's something that can spread out into your community and really create good in the world. So thank you so much for being on here, Chris. Well, I can't thank you enough, Matt. I'm a big fan of the podcast. So this is an honor for me to be on the science of success. So thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the science of success. Listeners like you are what make this podcast possible. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps us reach more people. And as a thank you to you for being awesome, I'm giving away my three favorite psychology books. All you have to do to enter to win is to text SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to 44222. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.